conflicts in Ukraine. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Good morning to you and welcome to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis along with Angelina Draper. Time Warner turns down $80 billion from Rupert Murdoch and Fox hints that it will up the bid. Jay Walder steps down early as CEO of the MTR Corp here in Hong Kong and China's home prices or rather home sales rise 33% in June from the month of May. Stocks were buoyant overnight as deal news and earnings juiced up the markets and no gaffes from day two of the Fed Chief Janet Yellen. RTHK. My general assessment at this point is that um, threats to financial stability are at a moderate level and not a very high level. Ms. Yellen said that assets do not appear to be overpriced. Some of the things that I would look at in assessing uh, threats to financial stability to see if they're broad-based, broad measures of asset prices, um, of equities, of real estate, of um, debt, do they seem to be um, out of line with historical norms? And I think there the answer is no. So that gave a little impetus to investors in the market. And we'll certainly discuss that with uh, Peter Lewis on the program a bit later. And then there was this little snippet from the deal of the day. What Rupert Murdoch wants more than anything else is HBO. And he's willing to buy all of Time Warner to get it. And so we'll have details on the possible merger coming up shortly. In our featured segment, we look at the launch of Uber, the private car service with its Asia chief, Sam Gelman. Peter Lewis from Peter Lewis Consulting will join us for a look at markets. Francis Guy from Social Ventures will be along to look at philanthropy and how it relates to modern-day business. And Rahul Chada from Mirror Asset Management will take us through his top picks of investment. Let's take a look at Asian markets this morning and how they're turning here in the early part of trade today. The Nikkei is up 45 points at 15,424. That's a third of a percent jump for the day. In Australia, the ASX 200 up 10 points at 55.14. And the Kospi is rallying in Seoul up 7 points. That's about a third of a percent up at 2020. The dollar yen now 101.64. So that's the dollar just a little weaker against the yen good for the equity market or rather not so good for the equity market and the euro is uh, changing hands at a dollar 35 us the pound now 13 hong kong dollars and 28 cents we'll get to some of the news flow now and then we'll bring in our guests shortly rupert murdoch's 21st century fox is reportedly willing to pay more for time warner time warner already turned down an initial offer of about 80 billion dollars for the company reports say that fox is prepared to raise its offer even even higher than $85 a share. Bloomberg's Eric Schatzker has more now on the rationale behind the deal. What Rupert Murdoch wants more than anything else is HBO. And he's willing to buy all of Time Warner to get it. You might, you might think of it in those terms. There's a lot more on the table with Time Warner. The cable channels, there is the sports program that they have, the rights to Major League Baseball, the NBA, the NCAA Championship, March Madness. All of those things come with Time Warner. And former AT&T chief Leo Hendry thinks the deal might get done. There are three motivations for the transaction. One, it could get done. 
Twix, Time Warner Inc., has no control shareholders. So an attack on it, like an attack last fall, last winter on, on Time Warner Cable, there's an inevitability uh, around Twix. It will, it's now in play. It's jumped 17% in its share values today. It's not going to give that back. The average Time Warner Inc. shareholder has been in the stock about three months. So they're not into the long-term agenda-building strategy here. Wow. The other motivations, and Eric hit on it well, uh, Rupert and Chase Carey almost uniquely have a sense of scale. Uh, some of the other guys on the content side, of which there are six dominant companies, they don't have such a such a fascination with the scale. Some they're like niche audiences in some cases more. Chase is committed to scale, and 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 the only place I would disagree with Eric is HBO is clearly a, a crown jewel, but the TNT TBS morphing over the years, Eric has, has brought a lot of value to the company. They're they're in sports now in a big way, which Fox has always liked, and 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 the third I think the third motivation was preemption. Yes, preemption, just so that nobody else uh, gets the deal instead of Rupert Murdoch. That's Leo Hendry speaking there, a media um, spokesman now. A deal would reshape the media industry. It would give the television and film companies bargaining power in negotiations with the cable operators. Former FCC member Robert McDowell says he does not think federal authorities would block the deal becomes harder for the government to say no to it, and this would be primarily an antitrust review, not an FCC review, but Department of Justice or perhaps Federal Trade Commission. But because of Comcast, Time Warner Cable, and because of AT&T DirecTV on the distribution side, uh, there's now more of a balance of power in, in the terms of, uh, in the view of antitrust regulators. Mr. McDowell told Bloomberg Television the media landscape is changing rapidly. Part of this, too, is a defensive play against over-the-top uh, deliveries. So you see consolidation distribution and consolidation um, within uh, the production of programming as well. And you're going to see more marriages of connectivity and content and apps, all because all of this is changing. It's being revolutionized by over-the-top plays and mobility as, as this screen becomes the first screen and not the screen that a lot of people are watching this program on right now. So all of that is mixing things up. And some of these are actually defensive plays as well as offensive. Former FCC member Robert McDowell on Wall Street stocks gained, sending the Dow Jones Industrial Average to an all-time high yet again. Time Warner and Intel rallied amid deals and earnings report reports. Uh, Time Warner was up 17 percent, Intel up more than 9 percent on strong earnings. In the end, the S&P 500 rose not 0.4 percent in 1981. The Dow up 77 points at 17,138. Fed Chief Janet Yellen said asset valuations aren't out of line with historical norms. Some things may be on the high side and there may be some pockets where we see uh, valuations becoming very stretched, but not generally. This followed a Fed report yesterday that suggested prices in social media and biotech companies were stretched. Ms. Yellen spoke about leverage and the exit strategy from quantitative easing. The use of leverage is not um, broad-based. It hasn't increased, and credit growth is not, um, you know, at alarming levels by any means. In 2012, I believe, um, we issued a set of exit principles in which um, one of the principles was that uh, over time we sought to normalize the size uh, of our balance sheet and to bring it down to Would the you- smallest level consistent with the efficient and effective 
conduct of monetary policy. Chair Yellen, would you characterize that then as a current plan or current commitment to reduce the Fed's balance sheet to historic levels? I would characterize it as a current plan. We are discussing um, our principles for the normalization of policy, okay. and as I indicated in my testimony, I expect um, we will be able to give more complete guidance when later this year when those discussions are complete. And in terms of policy, overall policy, Ms. Yellen said the Fed doesn't rely on simple arithmetic. What I oppose is tying monetary policy through a rigid mathematical formula to any rule, and we've now lived through a period where those rules would have performed just miserably, and if we had followed them, we would have had dreadful, even more dreadful macroeconomic performance than the disappointing recovery we've enjoyed. I wonder if my next guest uh, feels that way. And we'll get to Peter Lewis in just a moment. The yield on the 10-year Treasury note dropped a couple of basis points to 2.53%. Okay, let's say good morning now to Peter Lewis, who joins us here in our studios. Peter Lewis, the CEO of Peter Lewis Consulting. Good morning, Fancy that. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. (laughs) Yeah, uh, let's start first with Janet Yellen, because uh, one of the things she said yesterday, Royal Markets a little bit, uh, causing uh, biotech and some of the social media stocks to to flutter. She she backed away a little bit from it today, just saying there were some areas that were a little bit overstretched, but on balance, equity prices to her didn't seem uh, overvalued. Do you agree? Um, No. (laughs) Um, First of all, I I find it slightly curious that the chairman of the Fed has become an equity analyst. Yes, that is a little strange. It's not very common. (laughs) No, and and also in particular why she picked on social media and biotech stocks out of all the sectors and actually had quite a big impact on that sector over the last couple of days. But this idea that um, somehow were at, at norms of valuation, sort of, in, in my mind, just beggars belief because, we're, you know, we're in, we're seeing the, uh, the S&P 500 move up 190% now from its, uh, from its low in uh, 2009 there has been no correction in that period of of any note certainly nothing you know close to sort of well it was in 2011 it was pretty you know when the debt crisis was happening there was a pretty substantial correction then we, we haven't if, if we look at sort of you know the history of sort of bull markets you know and this this one is a fairly aging bull market now you normally get um, you know at least a couple of substantial corrections 10% or more is what yeah. I define as a, as a correction this is now um, the longest period we've gone in 85 years without any sort of correction. And the reason for that is because everyone is focused upon zero interest rate policy. We've had six years of zero interest rates. That has, in effect, been, you know, the fuel that's, uh, that, that's turbocharged this market. And in the process... It's created a huge amount of distortions in the market. We see that in the bond markets. We see junk bond yields at, at record lows. Um, you know, we see that in the, in, in, in the equity markets where if you look at valuations on a more historic basis as opposed to, you know, trailing PEs or forward-looking PEs, which are very, very dependent upon, um, you know, assumptions about EPS, which we know are being distorted because of share buybacks, you know, one-off um, sort of, you know. Um, so, so you say don't go with uh – 
you know, the norms of PE levels being, say, around 15 or so, that that's not too bad. We're only at 16 and a half now. Don't worry about that. I mean, don't say that's okay because those numbers that you see now are distorted by the buybacks. Yeah. And, and you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, earnings at the moment are being really boosted by one-offs, non-recurring um, items in the balance sheet. And, and a good example of that was, you know, the earnings we saw for, um, for Citigroup this week. You know, they, they beat the EPS estimates. They came out with $1.24 earnings per share, of which only three cents came from their core operating business. And all of their core operating businesses also showed a, a decline. But the rest of that, the other, you know, 121 was basically one-off items. So if you, if you base a PE on those types of earnings, you're going to come up with some rather strange um, sort of outcomes. But if you look at something that's like a, a, a cyclically adjusted PE, something like the Schiller PE, that's about 55% above its mean. If you look at, for example, Warren Buffett's, one of his favourite measures of uh, you know, market valuation, overall market cap uh, to, to GDP, that currently stands in the US at about 122%. The range has been from about 35 to 140 plus at the peak in Okay, so we, we know so there's a lot of money around. There's been a ton of money printing. The money needs to find its way somewhere. Don't you think the bond market is probably more overvalued than the yeah, stock well, market? I think the bond market is in, in many ways even more. Because um, you're know, dragging me down with your, um, you know, with your feeling about equity prices. <laughs> I mean, yeah. it's like, when do we get a break? Well, you know, if you look at the debt markets, they're also behaving in an extraordinary fashion. You've got leverage loans, junk bonds, sovereign debts of governments trading at prices that have simply no margin of safety in them um, anymore. You know, we're seeing um, junk bond yields at, at record lows. Banks are lending uh, to companies to buy back stocks, which then increases the risks to all the existing bondholders. Um, you know, 40% of all syndicated loans are now sub-investment grade, which is higher than the peak we saw in 2007. So, you know, we've seen this story before. You know, every time we've seen this, um, you know, three times we've seen this since 1988 now, which has led ultimately to a crash in the junk bond market. So, that, you know, th this so, is so let, let's go through these things one at a time real fast. Um, would you go, would you get out of junk bonds now? Would, uh, a lot of people listening yeah. to this program would have a lot of high yield. I mean, yes. OK, you're calling it yeah. junk bonds, but nowadays the banks call it high yield. And you'd say, get out now. Get out while you can. A big move is coming to the downside. I, I think, you know, what we've seen is that junk bond yields, valuations, profit margins, volatilities are mean reverting over time. We've seen this time and time again. So when you get to extreme levels, you can't put a timing on it and say, right, this is the point now at which you know, we start to see that. But for sure, these things will revert back to the mean and quite possibly overshoot um, uh, as well when that, when that reversion starts. So you feel comfortable with all asset uh, classes, apparently. I mean, you don't like the stock market. You don't like the bond market. Um, you probably don't like property then, I suppose. Uh, you wouldn't be buying property in Hong Kong, would you? Well, no, because everything is being boosted by the fact that you know over the last six years, the central banks have pumped almost 10 trillion dollars um, into the economy, most of which has gone into the financial markets. Ms. Yellen is saying that leverage is not uh, really heavy and that growth will bring us through this. Um, I, you, you say she's wrong. I say she's wrong. And I think why she's wrong is because the Fed models look at 
incoming macroeconomic data. What they don't look at is financial market data. And if you look at the things that are going on in the financial markets now, we're seeing, you know, in effect, you know, any type of short interest in the market being squeezed out because there's this implicit put um, in place. We have zero interest rates where people can borrow at, neg- um, you know, at negligible rates and then chase very yo- low-yielding assets as a, as a consequence. And, you know, the volatility goes down, so it means that the cost of ensuring that the normal market stabilizers, one of which is the cost of insuring your portfolio, goes down to record low levels. So there is no short interest left in, for example, equity markets, which is why you see these extraordinary rallies without uh, without a correction. It's just buy on the dips because there is the funding there right now to, uh, to do that and keep this going. Okay, Peter, stay with us because I want to talk to you about gold. I know that you're still high on gold. Gold uh, had a nice bounce in the past couple of weeks, but then, um, you know, yeah, got hit pretty hard in the last couple of days, down under $1,300 an ounce. Gold now trading twelve ninety nine seventy, just down 10 cents here in Asian trade. And oil prices had been going down for about 10 days in a row, perked up a little bit overnight, uh, up more than a dollar a barrel. Brent crude now $107.17. We're going to get back to a little bit of news flow. We've got Sam Gelman, head of Asia Expansion with Uber, coming up in a few short minutes. Francis Nye, founder and CEO of Social Ventures, Hong Kong, looking at philanthropy in just a minute. Peter Lewis will stay with us and later. Roll Chada, the Chief Investment Officer at Murray Asset Management, will join us. Here in Hong Kong, MTR CEO Jay Walden will leave his post next month, a year earlier than scheduled. An independent report recently criticized Mr. Walden for failing to monitor the construction of the high-speed rail link to Guangzhou. It's two years behind schedule. Mr. Walden refused to say whether he'd received any compensation for his early departure. There is a separation agreement that has been reached between uh, myself and the and the corporation. It follows the lines both of my contract and of the Hong Kong Employment Ordinance. I'm afraid that under the confidentiality agreement as part of that, I am unable to tell you any details of that agreement. Former KCR chief Michael Chen said it was time for Mr. Walder to go. Mr. Walder uh, uh, needs to be held accountable for the major part of this fiasco from two perspectives. First, that his interference with uh, uh, government, uh, his interfering with the government uh, bureau secretary uh, in terms of coming forth with their version of the timetable is uncalled for without informing the board. Secondly, his uh, 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 way of uh, monitoring and auditing his subordinates' work progress uh, is uh, less than satisfactory in terms of not having as relevant questions and doing enough due diligence. Mr. Walder's deputy, Lincoln Lung, will take over as acting CEO. You're listening to Money for Nothing. The time now is 8.21. And now over to Uber. Uber is the company that built a name for itself by muscling its way into the taxi business of cities around the world. It is officially launching its services today in Hong Kong. Now, the business model is quite simple. Users book a car through a mobile app, and that connects them to a network of Uber drivers. Payments are made through the app, and the company collects a 20% cut on the transaction, effectively making Uber a middleman. Sam Gelman is Uber's head of Asia expansion and joins us this morning. Good morning, Sam. 
Hi, how are you? Good morning. Good. Welcome. Thank you for coming to us today. So today's a pretty big day for Uber in Hong Kong. You're officially launching the service, although you've had time to test the market already, I believe. Yeah, we have had cars on the road in Hong Kong for about a month, and today we're doing our official uh, our official launch where we're talking to people about the service that we're bringing to Hong Kong. Okay. Have, has, have you seen any teething problems over the last month? I think the the thing that's really stuck out is just how strong the business has been um, in this one month trial period. We've now launched 130 cities in the world, and you know, like everywhere we go, we didn't know what to expect when we came to Hong Kong, uh, and we've all just been blown away by by how much interest there is in, in, in choice in transportation, and uh, and that's been great for us so far. Now, Hong Kong's quite an interesting market. Um, on the one hand, it's, one, it's got one of the lowest car penetration rates in the world. In fact, about 80 per 1,000 um, versus, for example, in the U.S., where it's almost 800 cars per 1,000. So there's potentially plenty of customers in need of transportation. But the market, the, the, the territory itself is actually quite limited. So the fares can never actually be too, too large because there's not that you can't really go that far. Has this cause some challenges in the fact that, I mean, you're ultimately just taking a percentage of the fare. Will this be a viable enough business for Uber? Yeah, I I absolutely think it will. I think, you know, Uber is about doing a lot of trips and making drivers just really, really efficient with their spare time. And Hong Kong is a fantastic city for that because uh, you can see drivers doing two trips per hour. And like you said, uh, there aren't that many transportation choices for people who uh, want a really, you know, want to ride a Mercedes or want a van that can take six or seven people. Uh, there aren't that many choices here if you don't have your own car. Uh, and Uber really steps into that and provides that for people. Okay, you mentioned drivers. Um, who are Uber's drivers? What are the requisites to become an Uber driver? Sure. Uh, Uber, Uber as a company doesn't own a single car anywhere in the world. Uber only connects passengers with licensed limo operators. So Hong Kong has licensed operators uh, who do VIP transportation for uh, the five-star hotels, for corporates, uh, for celebrities when they come to town. Uh, And the nature of the business is that these cars, these drivers, have a lot of spare time. So Uber works with them, and we give them additional trips uh, when they have free time uh, that would otherwise just be spent uh, sitting around. Okay. Now, I know in other countries, you've got different categories of cars. There's the Uber Black, the Uber XL. There's a more budget version. But you haven't rolled out all of those in Hong Kong. Is that correct? Yeah. In Hong Kong, we have, we have two options. You have the Uber Black, which is a Mercedes S-Class, uh, or Uber XL, which is a seven-seater uh, Toyota Alphard. Uh, the prices are the same, but those are the, the two options that you have when you're, when you're using Uber here. So- uh, Mr. Gelman, um, you're secretive about the number of drivers you have. Why is that? Well, we don't. I, I think that the number of drivers can be misleading. What, what's important to us is that we get riders a, a car wh- where they want it and when they want it. Well, uh, it's not. It's not um, immaterial. I mean, if you th- only have twelve drivers in town, uh, we're going to be waiting for a half an hour or longer. Um, obviously, the number, the penetration that you have, will enable you to to provide the service that people want, which is, I want a cab now, or I want a car now. Sure. I mean, I'm, I'm open about the, the fact that our, our median arrival time right now in Hong Kong is eight minutes. Uh, and that's something that Uber, because we have data and because we have fantastic technology, you know, we, we can use a, a certain number, a smaller number of cars to get you a ride in, in, in eight minutes. And that's just after four weeks here. I think if you look at some of our 
most developed markets like San Francisco, uh, arrival times are under three minutes. Uh, in New York, uh, a massive city, our arrival times are under four minutes. Uh, and we're starting to see the, sa- the same thing in London. Uh, and that's all because we have technology that enables us to really uh, serve Uber riders uh, very efficiently. But again, why why is there some sort of um, block on saying how many drivers that you have contracted? Yeah, it, it's not so much about the drivers. It's it's really just that we're a private company, um, and there are just specific numbers about you know because we're a private company, uh, there are just some numbers about our business that we we have the privilege of 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 not disclosing. So that's just one of them. It's not that specific though. Now, I have to admit, I've been playing around with the app for the last few days, um, and I've been enjoying watching the little cars moving around. I find it a little, a little bit um, eerie, but also a lot of fun to see black cars driving past. Now, the concentration is mostly on the island. Very rarely do I see a car on the Kowloon side, maybe one every so often. And, of course, it triggers my imagination, thinking, I wonder who that is. Uh, but generally, uh, how are you going to manage that to make sure that the cars, you know, the taxis are sort of divided up to make sure that there isn't a concentration of cars just on the island. Yeah, this is this is a strategy that we, we developed in in New York. Actually, uh, we you know we would much rather deliver a consistent and, and very very positive experience to a smaller number of people when we first are in this test period and getting launched. Uh, so you know I know that in Central we can get you a car in seven to eight minutes, and if we you know if the drivers went all across all of Hong Kong. Uh, we wouldn't be delivering great experience to anybody. So we've decided to really focus on the area between Kennedy Town uh, and Quarry Bay. And within that area, uh, you should reliably be able to get an Uber. Um, we hope that the cars on the system will be serving Kowloon you know, within a few months. Uh, and it's just a matter of growing into a market. Are you also tinkering with um, small-scale delivery models? You saw that in New York. We, we launched a, a delivery platform there where, where you could deliver goods, uh, and it wasn't just about, uh, about you know, moving people. Um, globally, though, we're, we're in 130 cities, and, and transportation and getting people from point A to point B uh, is really the focus of Uber, and uh, I think that's what you're going to see uh, from Uber in Hong Kong as well. And just out of curiosity, this is completely out of left field, but I saw some reports out overnight that Jay Carney might be joining Uber. Can you confirm that? I, I unfortunately can't, but I, they, I would they also say said he might be going to Apple, so <laughs> it's not clear. Yeah, I am uh, not the one to say one to go to Apple. <laughs> <laughs> Um, have you seen any unique um, characteristics of Hong Kong? I know you've, you've launched in China. You are present in other Asian markets. Has Hong Kong posed any particular um, challenges or opportunities? Yeah, I think the – I mean, it's a vertical city, and it's a very, very dense city. Uh, so it's not common that after just three weeks of operating in a city, we can already deliver arrival times in three – or in seven to eight minutes. So I think that that's been a really positive aspect of, of the business here. Um, you know, I think you – know, I've been at Uber for, for over two years. I, I set up our business in London. I set up our business in Amsterdam. Um, right now, we're already in 25 cities in Asia. So we have so many users all over the region uh, that want Uber uh, and that are using the app already. Uh, so I think what's really been unique is just how quick this uptake has been. And I think it's because we have so many people who love this service all over the world. And again, uh, briefly, why would somebody want to take an Uber car instead of a taxi if they have to pay more? I think you, I mean, you have a much more comfortable experience where you're in a Mercedes. You have a, a driver that, you know, will turn the music exactly as you want it. There's water in the car. There's Wi-Fi in the car. Uh, and you push a button and get a ride. 
So, and, and the review aspects, is that um, being fine-tuned? Yeah. After you take a ride, you give the driver one through five stars. Uh, and, and the driver rates you as well. The driver rates you. Um, but the goal here is just that we have as safe a platform as possible. Uh, it's that over time, we know that only the safest, best drivers are on the system. Uh, and you just have that feedback loop where bad service uh, is discouraged and, and good service is rewarded. And that's okay. very, very unique in transportation. We got to go. Thanks very much, Mr. Gelman, for joining us here. And good luck with the launch today. And uh, I'm sure we'll be seeing those cars uh, around Hong Kong. Uh, Sam Gelman, head of Asia Expansion with Uber, joining us here live on Money for Nothing. We got the news coming up just in a moment or so. Uh, I can tell you the standby signal number one is in force, so we do have that typhoon uh, signal number one. It means that a tropical cyclone is within 800 kilometers of Hong Kong. The forecast today reads uh, mainly fine at first. Isolated showers becoming cloudy and windy. The maximum temperature 31. The news is next. The news with Samantha Butler. The observatory has issued the standby signal number one as Typhoon Ramasoon heads towards western Guangdong and Hainan Island. With the storm some distance away from Hong Kong, the chance of issuing the strong wind signal number three this morning isn't high. The powerful typhoon killed at least 20 people in the Philippines. Radio Australia's Shirley Escalante reports from Manila. More than half a million people in the northeastern Philippines have been affected by Typhoon Ramasoon. But emergency officials believe there have been fewer deaths by Ramasoon compared to previous typhoons because of preemptive measures such as early evacuations. The governor of Albay province says his people did not want any deaths after learning from the experience of Typhoon Durian in 2006 where at least 500 people were killed or missing. In simple language, zero casualty. Authorities aim to restore power service to 13 million people in the next days as Typhoon Ramasoon heads to the Chinese island of Hainan. The United States has imposed its most wide-ranging economic sanctions yet on Russia, targeting defense, financial and energy companies. The punitive measures include sanctions against the giant oil corporation Rosneft, several arms firms and four senior Russian officials. President Obama said Moscow had failed to take the key steps needed to stop an escalation of violence in Ukraine. We're freezing the assets of several Russian defense companies. And we are blocking new financing of some of Russia's most important banks and energy companies. These sanctions are significant, but they are also targeted, designed to have the maximum impact on Russia while limiting any spillover effects on American companies or those of our allies. Seven Egyptian men have been sentenced to life in prison for sexually assaulting women during celebrations marking the inauguration of President Abdul Fattah al-Sisi. Two others received terms of 40 and 20 years respectively. They were found guilty of attempted rape and sexual harassment. You're listening to the news on RTHK.
good morning to you. 8.33, you're listening to Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis. We'll continue with the program now with our special uh, look at news and then back to the money business in just a few minutes. The chairman of Ledgeco's Railways Subcommittee says the entire board of the MTR Corporation should be held accountable for the two-year delay to the completion of the Express Rail Link. Michael Teen was speaking after the rail company announced yesterday that its chief executive officer, Jay Walder, would be stepping down next month, a year ahead of schedule. He was criticized in a report into the delay for poor judgment in monitoring the project. Mr. Teen says that it's right for Mr. Walder to be held accountable for the major part of what he called this fiasco. But he said that others are also to blame. The board also is responsible, even though Mr. Ma has said that he felt board members have done their best. I may not uh, agree so readily. Uh, I think he quoted board members asking uh, the management about the progress uh, on a very general basis. That is not the way you do uh, tight monitoring on capital works projects. You need to ask relevant questions from 360 degrees to cross-check all the answers before you can believe in uh, a timetable. It's not a blanket saying, do you have confidence it will be completed on time? Uh, if yes, then I trust you. We don't really know you don't really do project monitoring that way. So I think the board also has been negligent in pursuing finer details and asking more uh, relevant questions. In terms of whether uh, Mr. Chin also mentioned that Mr. Walder has acted in the best interest of the company by agreeing to leave early, I have to reserve my comment until I know his uh, departure package. As the chairman of Ledgeco's Railway Subcommittee, Michael Teen. A retired senior government official has told Rafa Hu's corruption trial that she wasn't aware that the former chief secretary declared any conflict of interest when he took over responsibility for the West Kowloon Cultural District project. That's despite his background as a consultant for one of the bidders. Maggie Ho reports. Testifying for the prosecution was Rita Lau, a former secretary for Commerce and Economic Development, who had also been involved in the Arts Hub project in 2005. Mrs Lau said she wasn't aware that any members of the steering committee for the project, including Raphael Hui, had declared a conflict of interest. Mrs Lau also confirmed that Mr Hui had asked if there were any legal constraints regarding modifying the single developer model for the 40-hectare project. The High Court had earlier heard that Mr Hui had suggested allowing more developers to take part in a multi-billion dollar project after a design submitted by Sun Hong Kai Properties failed to win the favour of a government evaluation body. Mrs Lau told the court that changing the model would have meant that everything the bidders had done up to that stage would be rendered useless. 
The prosecution alleges Mr. Hui accepted millions of dollars in payments from the co-chairman of Sun Hong Kai Properties, Thomas and Raymond Kwok, just days before he assumed office as chief secretary and head of the Cultural Hub Steering Committee. The hearing continues. Maggie Ho reporting. The Legislative Council's development panel has passed an on-binding motion opposing a government pilot scheme to bring arbitrators to a deal with disputes over land premia that developers must pay to rezone plots. The two-year scheme is to begin next month, but pan-democratic legislators say that they're concerned it will invite corruption. Our Mike Weeks asked a member of the development panel, the Labour Party's Fernando Jiang, why. Well, uh, for one, uh, it is very difficult to find any uh, arbitrator that really is free from conflicts of interest, especially with developers uh, that are so powerful in Hong Kong. Um, they are suggesting that uh, even if arbitrators would enter into um, uh, any uh, uh, business engagement with developers, after they completed, completed the arbitration, that is uh, fine with the system. Uh, that is a big, big uh, loophole there. And, and for one thing, uh, why should we bring in arbitration in this sort of uh, land premium negotiation? Uh, we are selling uh, the, the power, the privileges for, uh, to the developers for them to develop. Now, if you uh, enter into a transaction and the transaction isn't been completed, why should you bring in an arbitrator? Uh, let's say if you're selling a piece of uh, real estate, let's say if you're a house, uh, you want to sell at a market price. A uh, buyer come in uh, with a very low ball uh, uh, asking price, uh, offer price, you wouldn't sell it. You know? and, but this system allows the developer to low ball the uh, offer, and then after two times, they can trigger the arbitration uh, mechanism. And, and as a result, it is quite likely that they can buy these uh, de- the power to develop at a much lower price than they now uh, would have to pay under the uh, current system. That is that the uh, land premium would be de- uh, decided by the lands department. Uh, so we don't think that this arbitration system would be beneficial to the people of Hong Kong. We we would think that this could be uh, subject to uh, a lot of conflicts of interest and also could be abused by developers. Labour Party's Fernando Jung speaking earlier this morning on Hong Kong Today. The time is now 20 minutes before 9 o'clock. to you. We get back to our money issues now, looking at business and finance here on Money for Nothing. The Nikkei is up 77 points in early trading, a half a percent. We see big gains in Australia and Seoul. The markets apparently like what they heard overnight and a strong feed in from Wall Street. We say good morning now to Raul Chada, who's Chief Investment Officer of Murray Asset Management. Raul, good morning. Good morning. Yeah, sorry to make you wait, but great to have you back on the program. Uh, what are some of your best investment ideas at the moment, Raul? I think we continue to like, like the way we said about three, six months back with you, uh, there are themes which are very strong, very powerful in the region, and these themes would be 
the Asian consumer moving up, as we say, the Maslow's hierarchy of need, aspirational consumer, travel and tourism, need for healthcare across the region, technology, both through internet stocks, which may be expensive near term, but have a good long term potential. But these are, are such broad terms, Raul. They're such broad, <laughs> uh, you know, long, long-term trends that, uh, you know, you can lose a lot of money waiting for these things to play out over four or five years. You've got to pick the best companies here. You've got to pick the strongest business models, and you enjoy on the other side the benefits of compounding. If you, if you look at specific markets, I think India is something we are particularly bullish at. Uh, the elections have panned out better than expected. The Modi government's got a much stronger majority as expected. And what's been a positive surprise is the proactive stance of the central bank governor. I mean, what they did two days back in terms of kind of a freeing the banks, lending to infrastructure sectors from the, your CRA requirement reduces the cost of funding. So if you ask for one clear kind of an economy which is likely to accelerate from here, India stands out. China is going to be a muddle through. See, an overinvestment problem always takes a much longer time than a problem of underinvestment, which was India's case, which is easier to kind of... Okay, so you like India, got a favorable result from the election. We've had a nice pop in the equity market. Uh, What about Indonesia? Could a similar story be happening there? It is expected that the market favorite Jokowi may win, but Indonesia has got a slightly more headwinds than India. Uh, the reason I say that is last part of the exports in Indonesia have uh, commodity exports. And you look at where coal is today, it's below $70 per ton. So the challenge for Indonesia is to go beyond commodity exports. But on the other hand, from a two, three-year perspective, demographics are good. It's a large mass of 250 million people. And we've seen uh, Jokowi do a commonsensical approach to governance, which is required in Indonesia in terms of attracting FDI manufacturing. So if for, for patient investors, Indonesia can be a good bit. Okay, so Roll, hang on a minute, because we've also got Peter Lewis on the program, CEO of Peter Lewis Consulting. Uh, Peter, what do you think about emerging markets? It's been a little bit of a rough period here um, over the past year since Ben Bernanke spoke about the tapering process last yeah. May. Um, we've had a little bit of a rebound in some countries, but it's still kind of an uneven turf out there. It is, and, and you know we, we've mentioned India and Indonesia, both of which have been dominated by elections, yeah. and um, you know the, the hope that you know both both countries run um, current account deficits, they run fiscal deficits, so both countries need to attract foreign capital, and, and it really depends upon how they can reform their economies as to whether or not the markets are going to really push on further from from here. So in, Indonesia, I think, is more difficult than than India because you know even if Jokowi wins, he's not going to have the landslide victory that, that Modi had in India, and also he's got a much more difficult political landscape to try and deal with. You know, he's not going to get find his reform so easy to, to push through. So economic reforms in both countries are, are very important. All the emerging markets, including in Asia, are also very dependent upon the Fed again. You know, it's um, you know they are very very. Um, you know, very, very sensitive to quantitative easing, you know, how that's going to end and, and, the, and, and the outlook for interest rates in the U.S. So, you know, we see that every time there's a, a change. You know, we, we saw that with, the, uh, you know, with the, the taper last year. We'll see it again if, you know, if forward guidance on interest rate policy changes. Raul, is a key period once the tapering ends uh, when we start hearing from the Fed about uh, a possible timeline on rates? Raul? Yeah. See, I think 
think what what we what we see is, and I think that's that's what uh, Ellen also commented two days back, that if the payroll data and the economic data continues to be strong, you may see Fed hiking than before, and which is where the, our call is that it's east to his merit. Earlier this year, we saw all emerging do, uh, markets do well. But uh, I think over the next two, three years, we're going to see investors be far more discerning. Emerging markets are not going to behave like one homogenous pack. Um, the economies, the governments which reform do the necessary things to become this competitive, take care of all these fiscal deficits, current account deficits, will rise to the uh, occasion. And which is why performance within markets, within firms, is going to be so differentiating. You know, you mentioned that India is uh, probably your favorite pick at the moment. Uh, you also had uh, China on the list. Um, you know, we've talked a little bit about the developing uh, markets and uh, the BRICS. Uh, what did you make of this um, BRICS development bank? Yeah, see, um, I think BRICS as a concept is, is a concept which is 10 years old uh, because, uh, I mean, Russia and Brazil are an important part when China was urbanizing. But as China kind of moves away from investment-led growth, we'll see this big bull market of commodities. So on a demographics, on the population basis, you can get the concept together. But I think what investors are going to notice over the next five years is that growth varies sharply between probably India and China on one hand and Brazil and Russia on the other hand. Yeah. We saw Brazil uh, stay steady overnight on interest rates. Uh, interest rates all the way up at 11%. Uh, is the economy economy troubled at the moment, in your view? I think clearly interest rates are hurting the economy, but much more than the interest rates is the inward-looking bias of the government. So which is why you see every time the uh, market gets a sense that the current leadership is getting voted out, the market goes up because it goes back to the basic that you've got to cut down the subsidies, you've got to cut down the fiscal deficits, make your economy lean, competitive, and open it to the private sector. So within that term, you see extreme difference uh, variation between a performance of Mexico and Brazil. Okay, Raul, we don't have a very good line with you, so I think I'll let you go. And uh, thanks very much, and we'll try to do it again, uh, hopefully uh, sometime get you in our studios. Uh, so thanks for, for, for joining us. Raul Chada, the Chief Investment Officer of Murray Asset Management. We still have Peter Lewis of his own firm uh, with us. We haven't talked too much about China. Uh, we got pretty strong GDP yesterday, um, a little bit better than expected, 7.5%, better than the consensus of 7.4. Housing prices are rebounding. People seem to like the developer deal. Uh, how do you feel about China now over the next six months? Well, the, the GDP came in slightly ahead of consensus. What I think it means is that the government's target of 7.5% for the year is, is going to be hit. What I'm concerned about is the price of achieving that um, GDP growth. And, and what it looks like is that faced with you know, structural reforms that they also need to do in their economy, which is going to have a natural slowdown on GDP, they've got instead for boosting sort of credit growth. So we've seen credit growth once again surge. It's at the highest level in, um, in, that we've seen in uh, three months, the fastest pace of, uh, of growth in bank loans and, and other forms of credit. And this is really what has helped boost the, uh, the, the GDP again. And it's slightly worrying because what we really need to see in, in, in over the longer term is a decrease in investment as a percentage of, of GDP and an increase in, in consumption. We've got to move away from this unsustainable model of you know credit growth to go and drive GDP. And it looks yeah, like they're the on record for wanting to do this, but they're you know they're quite sensitive to growth dropping too fast because they've Absolutely. got an awful lot of people they have to employ, and they've probably got you know 500 million people in the rural sector that need to be brought into modern day China. 
And, and also, they're very dependent on the property market. I mean, property, you know, Moody's estimate that property is 23% of GDP. So if they put on the brakes too hard and, and rein in the shadow banking system too hard, which is responsible for a lot of the credit that, that drives the property market, the risk is they'll see a collapse in their property market and a, and a big hit on GDP. The problem is, though, that in the short term, this looks quite good. It looks like, you know, they've got a sort of a balance um, sort of between the two. In, in the longer term, there is a risk that actually what's going to happen is they will lose control of, of growth altogether because what happens is that, you know, as, as people sort of, you know, refinance, this is taking up all the new yeah, sort of credit growth. You're always scary guy looking at the downside. Uh, <laughs> yeah, you must be a tough dad. Um, anyway, um, we've got Francis Nye, founder and CEO of Social Ventures, coming up in just a moment, and he's going to talk about philanthropy. So last question to you. We've got to make people rich before they can really start thinking about uh, giving away huge chunks of money. Uh, gold is one of your favorite picks. You stand by that. I, I do. I mean, the last couple of days haven't been good for gold. And, and that's, again, partly down to uh, the Fed and Janet Yellen's comments, which were, you know, not more hawkish, but maybe not no more dovish than they've, they've been recently. And with a little hint that maybe, you know, there are some things that might drive, um, you know, interest rates higher further, further down the road. So that's hit gold. What about it? overall commodities? I think Goldman Sachs was out overnight saying that the, the long term bull run uh, is done. I, I think that's probably right, um, with some exceptions. And I think gold is, is probably going to be one of those exceptions. I think, you know, certainly if we do see, um, you know, any sort of financial market turmoil, then, you know, the gold will come back with a, with a vengeance. But, you know, a, a lot of these commodity prices are very dependent upon China, um, you know, and so therefore, you know, as, as long as China GDP can hold up, then, you know, there's a, there's a good chance that some of the commodity prices will do okay, particularly, you know, prices like aluminium, iron ore, copper, um, you know, they are very, very dependent upon China. So, you know, not putting a word in your mouth, but if I did ask you, what is your single best investment idea to get people rich so that they can listen to Francis and give money to people who need it? What would that single best well, investment I, I, idea I be? I still like gold. Okay. Um, you know, I, I'm still a, a gold ball. Yeah, so I had put word, a word in your mouth. Okay, thanks very much, Peter. Uh, really always enjoy having you on the program. Peter Lewis, Peter Lewis Consulting. more stimulating business talk radio here on Radio 3 in the program Money for Nothing. I'm Brian Curtis along with Angelina Draper and Angelina is an intern at Radio 3 and look how great she's doing and it's a good signal to all of you out there listening give interns a chance they can amaze you. So now that I've made her red in the face and embarrassed uh, here is Angelina Draper. Thank you for that. I'll remember that. My mother will be calling later on to thank you. So Hong Kong has more millionaires than ever. The number of people earning over seven figures shot up by 20% last year. And it leaves you wondering, is any of this money actually flowing back into the com community? We're joined now by Francis Guy, founder and CEO of venture philanthropy firm Social Ventures. Good morning, Francis. Good morning, Angela. So tell us a little bit about some of the work that Social Ventures does in venture th philanthropy. Um, uh, we are running a non-profit venture philanthropy organization, so we are providing financial and non-financial support uh, for the social enterprises in Hong Kong. Some of the examples, like uh, we have launched the very first branded taxi service, which is called Diamond Cab, uh, which is dedicated to serve the wheelchair users in Hong Kong. 
And uh, we launched uh, Green Monday two years ago. So it's advocating one day meat-free, which is uh, making big impact to the environment. And also we have a project called Light B, which is a very first affordable housing initiative. As you talked about, Hong Kong is rich, but at the same time, income inequality, income gap, we're well number one among the developed economy. So right now, many people living in less than seven square meters, 10 square meters. So we are having an initiative to try to solve this problem with business and investment skills. Okay. And is there a strong culture of philanthropy in Hong Kong? Um, sorry? Is there a strong culture of philanthropy in um, Hong Kong? I would say the um, more traditional charity and angels are supporting the, the most of the part of the cha- uh, safety net. But I think we are not having a good momentum in moving towards uh, pioneering the new momentum like in the U.S. and the, the other area. So I think right now what we see is that um, the global trend is trying to use business, the mainstream, try to solve the problem directly instead of just earning money and then using the, um, the proceed to going into the uh, society. And would you say that donations have been skewed more towards education and science rather than towards social, social cultural issues or is there one is there one segment versus another that's more popular um i would say right now and uh, apart from the issues uh, that talked about i think in hong kong in specific uh, many of money will go to the mainland will go to the, some other countries but people don't realize that in hong kong a rich city like us is having a lot of social issues i suspect that many in many big cities we have uh, increasingly many more problems in terms of death and breath so uh, like the youth is very different than, than 20 years ago the poverty issues right now, we have we're running out of ideas in solving that now. So I think we, we should really look into the city now. Um, maybe not in Hong Kong Island, go in some Soi Po and some Tin Soi Wai, some of the area like that. So do you think there's an image problem that there, the image of Hong Kong is skewed to one specific area and people are forgetting everything else? Absolutely. absolutely. Okay. Now, your project Lightbe is designed um, to provide affordable housing, and you mentioned that earlier on, to single-parent families especially. Um, tell me a little bit more about that. How are you specifically facilitating this through social ventures? What are some of the actual activities that you're doing? Right. So it's a, um, to be sim- uh, more simple, it's a social property agency business. So on one hand, actually, there exists a lot of property owners. Hong Kong people buy properties, you know it. And then um, right now, some of the property owners rent their house to us without charging the market rent. At the same time, we will re-rent that house to the, some single-parent family. So it's at their affordability. Uh, it is not subdivided cubicles. For example, one apartment, there exists two to three sleeping rooms. We move in two to three single-parent families. So there is a co-housing concept. They're sharing the living room, sharing the kitchen and, and toilet. So uh, after moving in, actually, we launched this project last year. And right now, many of the families having a better momentum to moving out of the poverty cycle. Uh, we grow from one apartment to right now 15 already. Okay. And Tycoon Lee Ka-shing was quoted earlier this month as saying he was concerned about the growing divide between rich and poor in Hong Kong. Would you say your work is helping to bridge that gap? Um, absolutely. I think right now, it's not just about resources and material. It's about the mindset. Right now, the rich people is saying that the poor, poor issue is not my, my business. But I think right now, social enterprise in general is uh, trying to challenge that. Business could really play a good. It's not just um, earning money and then donate back. While we are doing business, can we use business entities and expertise or network to solve the social problem directly? You know, there are a lot of uh, people, though, in this town, uh, Francis, who think business should be about business. I mean, it should be a return to shareholders. Um, how do you find that kind of mentality? Um, I, I doubt. Uh, right now, people talk about CSR. I think it's not going to help. It's a voluntary basis. 
So Michael Porter is now talking about CSV, creating shared value. So right now, a lot of uh, mainstream business, big business, multinationals trying to use that business to solve the problem directly. Then on, um, working with Mohammed Yunus on making the yogurt factory. So it's, uh, many of these showcases are already there. Yeah, give us a good example of that, other uh, than uh, Mr. Yunus. Right. Uh, Yunus, uh, working with Denon, which is a very big France um, food company. So they are, rebu- uh, re- they are building a yogurt factory in Bangladesh. Uh, and then on one hand, that uh, many of the employees being um, employed over there, they create jobs over there. But at the same time, they are launching a one brand new brand on yog- of yogurt brand there, uh, which is quite cheap. So cheap that um, the 50%, actually the problem is 50% of the children there have malnutrition problem. So right now it's so cheap that they could buy the yogurt um, a couple of times a week, in a week. So at the same time doing business, but solving the problem that over, over there in Bangladesh. Do you worry about comments like we heard uh, from uh, Lee Ka-shing that we are sort of getting closer to a confrontation point here that people who um, are at the lower end that uh, you know aren't as well off as others here that um, you know they're getting there's a level of anger that's rising yes absolutely i would say right now we come to a very um severe situations but i think instead of just sitting here feeling the fear i think i would say um we should take actions we don't take side i think we should do something i think social entrepreneurship in a sense is doing that Okay, well, thanks thanks very much, uh, Francis, for joining us here on Money for Nothing. Francis Nye, founder and CEO of Social Ventures Hong Kong. Back to our news coverage now here on the program. The U.S. government has announced a new round of sanctions against Russia for its involvement in Ukraine. President Obama explained why Washington is tightening the economic screws on Moscow. I've repeatedly made it clear that Russia must halt the flow of weapons and fighters across the border into Ukraine that Russia must urge separatists to release their hostages and support a ceasefire, that Russia needs to pursue internationally mediated talks and agree to meaningful monitors on the border. I've made this clear directly to Mr. Putin. Many of our European partners have made this clear directly to Mr. Putin. We have emphasized our preference to resolve this issue diplomatically, but that we have to see concrete actions and not just words that Russia, in fact, is committed to trying to end this conflict along the Russia-Ukraine border. So far, Russia has failed to take any of the steps that I mentioned. In fact, Russia's support for the separatists and violations of Ukraine's sovereignty has continued. President Obama will leave you with some of the numbers uh, from the markets. Oil prices did move up a little bit overnight. Brent crude now $107.22 a barrel. As I mentioned, gold is down a little bit this morning and right now trading at $1,300 an ounce. Okay, that's our program for today. Thanks very much for listening. Uh, we'll just leave you with the weather. We do have that uh, typhoon signal number one up. It means that a tropical cyclone is uh, centered about 800 or somewhat um, uh, less than 800 kilometers uh, from Hong Kong, and it may affect us. Mainly fine today. Isolated showers, cloudy, the winds to pick up, the showers to be stronger, the maximum temperature at 31. The news is next on Radio 3. R-T-H-K.